Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SREMI, Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for information and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you considered pericarditis or myocarditis in a patient presenting with chest pain or shortness of breath, with or without fever? I'll give you a second to think about that case. Now, for me, if I'm going to be honest with myself, pre-COVID pandemic, unless it was obvious, I didn't consider these diagnoses very often because things like MI, PE, dissection, pneumonia, pneumothorax are all generally at the front of my mind in patients who present with chest pain, shortness of breath, with or without fever. And fair enough, pericarditis and myocarditis are generally less life-threatening than some of these diagnoses and are way less common than, say, pneumonia. Then COVID hit, and suddenly everyone is talking about pericarditis and myocarditis. Now, early in 2022, when I see a patient with shortness of breath or chest pain or fever, sure, I still consider the same list of big killers and common stuff, But now, pericarditis and myocarditis somehow push their way a little bit higher on my list. Now, should they be? Well, this is just one of the many questions we're going to answer in this two-part podcast series on pericarditis and myocarditis with our two guests, who you all probably know by now, my EM colleague from North York General, Walter Himmel, and Paul Dorian, our go-to master cardiologist, clinician, educator, and researcher. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Plus, we might just throw in a short little rant here and there from our very own POCUS Cases educator, Rob Samard, and at ECG Cases himself, Jesse McLaren. So in this part one on pericarditis, we're going to explore why pericarditis should be considered a diagnosis of exclusion, how it can be an elusive diagnosis with tips on how to pick up the subtler cases the evidence for various medications, and who should be admitted to hospital. And if pericarditis wasn't a tough enough diagnosis to make sometimes, just wait till you hear our discussion in part two on myocarditis. All right, gentlemen, I am full of anticipation to hear what wisdom you'll certainly bring to this topic. Let's jump into a case. A 50-year-old male with a past medical history of hypertension and GERD comes in with an abrupt onset, sharp waxing and waning central chest pain associated with a bit of shortness of breath for the past 24 hours. The pain radiates to his right trapezius ridge, seems to be worse at night, and with coughing and deep inspiration. He was active and was jogging regularly until about six weeks ago when he developed this flu-like illness with similar chest pain that lasted for a few days. This was followed by gradually increasing swollen ankles and shortness of breath with walking. On exam, he's afebrile with a heart rate of 105, a little bit tacky, respiratory rate of 22, a little bit tachypneic, blood pressure of 150 on 100, a little bit hypertensive, and an oxygen saturation of 93% on room air. 
His JVP is elevated, and he's got two-plus bilateral pitting edema. He's got bilateral basal crackles to the lung bases. No rub, no murmur. ECG shows a right bundle branch block with diffuse T-wave inversions. Trope and D-dimer come back negative, and his CRP comes back moderately elevated. Chest X-ray shows some mild pulmonary edema. All right, so Dr. Dorian, what are your sort of general thoughts on this case first? Uh, this is clearly a challenge. It, let me start with a couple of thoughts as I, that I that I carry with me as my kind of baggage in my backpack, which is usually full of rocks, when I see any patient with a relatively complex scenario like this. So first of all, I am mindful of the fact that the brain is actually much less smart of an organ than we think, and the communication between the thoracic cavity and the brain has a limited bandwidth. Put it another way, the brain has a limited repertoire for differentiating between different kinds of inputs that it gets from the thoracic cage. And therefore, the nature of a discomfort from the chest can be very difficult to help one distinguish between the different kinds of pain. Unlike, for example, on the skin, you know, if somebody touches your palm with something uh, sharp or something dull or something, there's pressure, hot and cold can be confused. But we're much better at, at assessing cutaneous symptoms than we are at assessing sort of mesenchymal symptoms. So I'm always a little bit modest about my understanding of the nature of discomfort. I'm a little more persuaded about the behavior of discomfort with inspiration or with body movement and the duration of symptoms. So that's one aspect of it. The second is I like to indulge in what I call Bayesian thinking, which means that whenever I approach a problem, I ask myself, what are the common things that happen in patients of this age, this demographic, this background, this remote history, this ethnicity? And I interpret all my signs and symptoms in the light of what I know. So if I may digress a little bit, uh, you know, in a 22-year-old, my interpretation of chest discomfort is going to be very different from a 75-year-old. So you've given us a very challenging case, but because a 50-year-old, um, from the Bayesian perspective, is old enough to have a non-zero chance of having coronary artery disease. The symptoms certainly don't sound like myocardial ischemic symptoms because they've been lasting quite a long time. Uh, this would be pretty atypical for pulmonary embolization with a history of a month. The presence of the tachycardia the duration of symptoms, the flu-like illness, uh, the fact that the symptoms are waxing and waning makes me think of some subacute or chronic rather than a super acute condition. It makes me think of inflammation as an important, relatively likely cause of this type of syndrome. And when I think of inflammation inside the chest, we don't have to go over them. Obviously, pericarditis would be one of them, but there's many other inflammatory diseases, vasculitis, costochondritis, pleuritis from a chronic mnemonic process. Any of those things can cause this type of discomfort. The positional aspect that you've described, it's pretty common to have with pericarditis to have pain that is worse on inspiration and worse on lying down. Beautiful. All right. I want to talk a little bit about the sort of general approach to pericarditis then. And here I'm borrowing heavily from Jesse McLaren's ECG Cases blog that was published just a few months ago on EM Cases. 
And here it is. Pericarditis should be considered a diagnosis of exclusion because it can be easily confused with more deadly and time-sensitive diagnoses like MI. So for ED chest pain patients, we should do what we do best before prematurely closing in on the diagnosis of pericarditis. We first need to rule out the five big killers. So MI, PE, dissection, esophageal rupture, and tension pneumothorax. Dr. Himmel, what are some key clinical clues to help us differentiate pericarditis from these other generally more deadly causes of of chest pain? Let's go over sort of some of the, the key clinical clues there. Well, I think like most things, history is uh, supreme. I can tell you a story. I've, I've had pericarditis in 1999. I had for about six weeks. And um, the pain was bizarre. It was aching and comfortable, sharp and stabbing and burning. But every time I got asked about the pain, my brain interpreted differently. So I didn't know what to think about it at all. But I knew the pain was constant. I did a stress test myself one day when I had pericarditis. I walked up and down two flights of stairs and it definitely got worse. So you got to be careful. So I think the history is everything. How long have you had your symptoms? And rather than what's the nature of it, which you should ask about, much better question is what makes it better and what makes it worse? And is it always there? And how is it evolving? So I think the time pattern, the precipitating factors, the leaving factors of any sort of pain is extremely helpful, particularly the time factors. Well, they say myocardial infarction comes on reasonably quickly over time. It doesn't last for days. That's probably true. Uh, but you can have unstable angina, which can last for months and weeks. Precipitating factors, leaving factors essential. Associated factors such as shortness of breath, very helpful. Positional factors, often overrated. I think the classical pericarditis, people say, of course, when they lie back, it's worse and sit forward, it's better. But I got to tell you, after a while of having pain, you don't know what the hell makes it better or worse in terms of position. But activity is a big factor. Uh, past health is a big issue. Do they have collagen vascular disease? Do they have risk factors? Have they, do they have family histories? That, that's a big deal. Reviewing all the relevant other organs, your GI system, alcohol, drinking, viruses, flus, abdominal symptoms, musculoskeletal symptoms, that's also a, a big deal. So the history is supreme. And obviously, a pneumothorax tends to be one-sided, but the pain can sometimes be diffuse, comes on suddenly usually, would a pneumothorax last six weeks? Um, unlikely, but not entirely impossible. Pomeambulism, that's almost never central. That's usually one side or the other, but there's exceptions to that rule. But you have to shorter breath as well, worse with exertion. So I think the history is, uh, is a really big deal. And keep it broad and fight the urge for premature closure. I think we all use heuristics. We all use system one thinking. We all jump to the conclusions. And that's a very dangerous thing to do. That's how you make mistakes. Okay, so suffice to say that in terms of the timing, pericarditis generally is going to be something a little bit longer than, say, a PE or an MI, although you said there are some exceptions there. Generally, these are younger patients, but again, there's exceptions there. Uh, they might have a prodrome of uh, a respiratory or a GI viral sort of prodrome, but again, you can have that with pneumonia and a whole bunch of other diagnoses. Um, the chest pain, yes, it's usually pleuritic. Yes, it's usually worse on lying down and better on sitting up, but again, there's exceptions to that as well. They can have a fever with it. And then on the physical exam, there's, of course, the uh, the famous rub, which uh, we'll talk about a little bit later. But suffice to say, keep your differential wide, keep an open mind. You need, really need to 
again, rule out the more immediately deadly causes first before you really start to prematurely close on a diagnosis of pericarditis. So once we have sort of thought about and ruled out the big killers that present with chest pain, then we should consider the diagnostic criteria at least. Let's talk a little bit about that, about the diagnostic criteria of pericarditis. So we'll have this in the show notes, uh, but I'll just review them here. You need two out of four of the following criteria. One is pericarditis chest pain, so which is typically, again, sharp, pleuritic, and positional. Uh, number two is a pericardial rub on auscultation, which is in less than a third of cases. We'll talk about it in a bit. Number three is new widespread ST elevation or PR depression on the ECG, which we're going to get into a little bit later as well. And four, new or worsening pericardial effusion. So two out of four of those will meet the diagnostic criteria. Then some additional supportive findings are elevation of markers of inflammation like CRP, ESR, white blood cell count, and evidence of pericardial inflammation by imaging, so contrast CT or, or cardiac MR. So those are the diagnostic criteria. I want to talk a little bit more about the diagnostic evaluation for pericarditis. So in the latest ESC guidelines, they talk about auscultation for a rub, ECG, ultrasound, chest x-ray, white blood cell with a differential, which may suggest a bacterial cause. They talk about CRP and or ESR uh, to maybe help with the diagnosis and to follow the effectiveness of treatment, some would say. They talk about creatinine to rule out uremia as a cause of the pericarditis and troponin to rule out ACS or accompanying myocarditis. So that was just kind of a very quick overview of what the guidelines suggest as diagnostic evaluation, but I want to dig into each of these a little bit more. So first, the pericardial rub. Like I was saying, in a noisy ED, it might be very difficult to hear a rub, but we should certainly give it a shot at least to see if we can listen to one because if we can find a rub, that's pretty much a slam dunk diagnosis in, in the right kind of patient. Uh, so Dr. Dorian, do you have any tips on how to maximize your chances of picking up a pericardial rub? Yes, although I completely agree. I think it's important to note that if you don't hear a rub, it could be because there's a lot of noise in the background, somebody's listening to ACDC, or there's <laughs> uh, lots of noise in the emergency room, or there isn't a rub. In my experience, the rubs are difficult to hear, evanescent, meaning in a person with obvious pericarditis, it'll be present for a short while and then disappear, and the patient is still sick, but the rub has gone away. My guess is that probably it's because now there's a little bit of fluid in the pericardial space, not necessarily a large effusion or tamponade, but just enough fluid that the surfaces aren't rubbing together anymore. So if you don't hear a rub, not really helpful. If you do hear a rub, it's very helpful. This is something that I think is really uncommon in uh, the 21st century, but uh, in the previous century, and I was around, I'm afraid, um, we occasionally saw large transmural myocardial infarcts, which were complicated by uh, pericarditis and a pericardial friction rub. So it's possible to get a friction rub just from pericardial inflammation, which is the consequence of a large MI. We tend to see this very, very rarely, but it's not 100% specific for pericarditis. 
and it's uh, it's got a peculiar flavor to it when you hear it. It's triphasic. There's three sounds, and it really sounds like somebody's rubbing two pieces of sandpaper together. Uh, I'm not sure if I can emulate it clearly, as I'm not as good as Bobby McFerrin, uh, but I will try. It's basically... <laughs> That's way too harsh, but imagine you have two pieces of sandpaper and you're rubbing them together, and in my experience, it's almost always triphasic. You hear three sounds just at the left sternal border with the patient leaning forward. That's how I would do it operationally. If you hear it and you've got a friction rub, unless it's obvious the patient's had a massive myocardial infarct, which I hope nobody will miss, it's probably pericarditis. So patient leaning forward, you're listening for a triphasic rub. I've also heard about listening during end expiration, like you ask the patient to hold their yes, breath I, I at the end of expiration. Yes, I thank you for reminding me. Absolutely. You want to sort of get the lungs out of the way. That's correct. Okay. And obviously, if the patient's breathing, then you're going to get the extraneous sounds of respiration. So for auscultation, it's probably a good idea to always listen in held expiration or or if not forced expiration, just ask the patient to stop breathing for a while. That's true for any heart sounds, not only pericardial rubs. I will make one silly warning, though. If the patient is breathing rapidly, has a hairy chest, and if you don't apply the uh, diaphragm firmly, you could hear the hair moving back and forth. Mistake that to be a rub. So so listening when the person's not breathing, expiration is a great idea. And the absence of a rub, of course, means nothing. The death of auscultation of the heart is not yet here in 2022. (laughs) It's still important because... uh, you know, I, I've picked up a couple over the last few years just with the rub. I'm a musician, so I have a pretty good ear. Uh, but I don't think we should abandon auscultation altogether, you know, claiming that, well, in most patients, you're, you're not going to hear a rub. I think the more we listen for it, the more likely we are to pick one up. All right, let's move on to the ECG. Now, we all learned in medical school that the classic ECG finding in acute pericarditis is diffuse ST elevation. But as with almost everything, it's not so simple. It turns out that widespread PR depression or ST elevation is suggestive, but not, but is not specific for pericarditis. And often the patient's presentation and ECG are more subtle or atypical. And that's when we miss the diagnosis. So let's dive into the nuances of ECG interpretation for pericarditis. I'd like to first go over the ECG stages or progression of changes seen with pericarditis and how to distinguish those ECG findings of pericarditis from ACS uh, and early REPL. So let's first go over the four stages of ECG changes in pericarditis. It's important to remember first that the temporal evolution is highly variable But generally speaking, stage one is that classic ST elevation diffusely or PR depression diffusely, and that occurs hours to days after onset of symptoms. Then stage two is the normalization of the PR ST segments, and that's seen in the first week usually. And then stage three is the T-wave inversions. And then finally, stage four is normalization of the ECG. Now, sometimes you can skip directly from stage one to stage four and not see stage two or stage three at all. And again, and again, the evolution of these stages is highly variable when it comes to time. So the big pitfall is that because some patients go straight from stage one to stage four to normalization, 
before they present to the ED, you can have a perfectly normal ECG with acute pericarditis. So the big pitfall is to rule out pericarditis based on a normal ECG. Okay, and Dr. Dorian, tell us a little bit more about these nuances of the different stages of ECG changes in pericarditis. Widespread ST elevation, it can be a little bit subtle, but the most important thing is the diffuse nature. So it's very unusual, very, very unusual to get my uh, myocardial infarction where you have ST elevation in the inferior leads and the lateral leads and the anterior leads and the apical leads, which would be V5 and V6. So what I generally look for is the diffuseness of it rather than the dramatic nature of ST segment elevation. Almost always when you have myocardial infarction, which is obviously the first thing you think about when you have ST segment elevation, uh, it would be localized in the territory of the relevant myocardial infarct. Uh, you can you can also see ST segment elevation in myocarditis, which I think we're going to cover perhaps in another session. But uh, you can get ST segment elevation in myocarditis where it's purely the myocardium that's inflamed, where there is not clearly associated pericarditis. Although typically you can get inflammation of both the muscle as well as the pericardium, so it's not uh, it's not necessarily absolutely specific. Importantly, by the time the patient presents, for example, the patient that you give us the history for, it would be totally expected that the ECG may have completely normalized if this patient has had symptoms for quite some time. Okay, so some key points there are that you can have a perfectly normal ECG and still have pericarditis, and that the typical findings are really that stage one, that first stage acutely where you have the diffuse ST elevations or PR depressions, and that it's highly variable how they're going to go through these stages. The nature of the ST segment elevation is a little bit different in most cases where you have pericarditis-induced ST elevation and when you have infarction-induced ST segment elevation. Typically, the J-point is either a little bit elevated or it looks normal. In other words, the transition from the QRS complex to the ST segment is fairly sharp in pericarditis, and it can be very indistinct and blurred in acute myocardial infarction. Second is that the ST segment generally retains its normal upward concavity, meaning it's cup-shaped. So it looks like a cup or like a U, if you like, uh, as opposed to coved, which is what you more often see in myocardial infarction, uh, which looks like a dome, if you like. Typically with pericarditis, you tend to see a preservation, at least initially when the SD segments are elevated, a preservation of the normal upright T waves. And you generally see that the J point can be very sort of sharp, as I mentioned, and distinct. And, and it's all widespread. The other thing I found interesting when I was looking at uh, ECGs was that my understanding is that patients who have uremia as a cause for their pericarditis tend not to have so much inflammation of their pericardium and so can have perfectly normal ECGs in the throes of severe pericarditis. Okay, so that's a little bit about the stages of ECG changes with pericarditis and when you might find a normal ECG in the throes of pericarditis. Dr. Himmel, could you go through for us on the ECG sort of the key findings that can help distinguish pericarditis from MI? So we'll, we'll, we'll first we'll distinguish pericarditis from MI on the ECG, and then we'll go through how to distinguish 
pericarditis from early repoll, which are the two ones that seem to be most mixed up and misdiagnosed. Sure. Well, I think these are good skills to have, but my first point would be uh, don't be too confident. So the fused ST elevation certainly suggests pericarditis. Infarcts tend to be inferior or posterior or septal or lateral or tend not to be diffuse. That is true. I find your three very, very important leads that we often neglect. I'll tell you what they are right off the bat. AVR, V1, and AVL. So AVR and V1 next to each other in a 12-lead cardiogram. And in pericarditis, in AVR, the ST, the segment usually depressed. In fact, almost always I would say in AVR, the ST segment is depressed. In V1, in pericarditis, the ST segment is usually depressed. So that would favor pericarditis. And I would say AVL is a neglected but phenomenally important lead. In AVL, the T wave should always be up. And in AVL, this is super important, uh, the, in pericarditis, the ST segment, if it's changed, should be elevated. Anytime you see ST depression in AVL, anytime you see ST depression in AVL, you've got to really be very careful of missing inferior wall ischemia. So that is extraordinarily uh, uh, important lead. So I'd say diffuse ST elevation, except look at AVR, it should be down. Look at V1, normal or down, and AVL should be elevated and never down. ST depression AVL or T wave inversion in AVL is often the earliest sign of inferior wall ischemia. So that's the lead you should always have a peek at. Those are great tips. I remember uh, Eric Lutovsky teaching me way back that ST elevation in lead two greater than lead three favors pericarditis, where ST elevation in lead three greater than lead two is more suspicious for a STEMI. To what degree um, is that true? It's helpful. You know, there are very few permanent absolute truths. So you have to get multiple data points. And in the world of pericarditis, it's very important because there's two things you don't want to do. Tell somebody with a STEMI they're having pericarditis, which I've done, and give heparin and aspirin and clopidogrel to somebody with pericarditis, which I've done. So you don't want to do those two things. So you've got to be very circumspect and, and take your time. So let's look at standard lead two and standard lead three. In pericarditis, the ST elevation in standard lead two tends to be more than the ST elevation in standard lead three. And in inferior wall infarction, the ST elevation in standard lead three tends to be more than standard lead two. And this makes complete sense and I'll tell you why. Pericarditis is diffuse inflammation of the heart. So if pericarditis is causing ST elevation, the ST elevation is followed the major axis of depolarization and of the electrical patterns of the heart. Since the major depolarization of pericarditis is diffuse, and since the major axis of the heart is down and to the left, pericarditis should primarily be ST elevation in two more than three. On the other hand, if you have an inferior wall infarction of your inferior muscle, now you're looking at muscle which tends to be more down possibly to the right. This is why in inferior wall infarct, you're going to get ST elevation more in standard lead three than in standard lead two. Now in my experience, how consistent is this? It's pretty good. I must tell you, it's pretty, pretty good. 
And I'll also emphasize, as I said earlier, when you see ST elevation standardly three, more than two, look at AVL. And I bet 99.99% of the time, here's what you will see in inferior infarct in AVL. ST depression and T wave inversion. So when you see ST inversion in AVL, T wave inversion in AVL, and ST elevation in two and three, three more than two, that's always an inferior wall infarction. So two and three are worth comparing to each other for sure, but always combine it with AVL. And that's, this is something worth remembering. I, I, I truly believe that because you don't want to miss an MI for sure. And they're easy to miss. Great. So those are a few of the key findings. We talked about lead two versus lead three. We've talked about V1 and AVR. We've talked about AVL. One more important pericarditis ECG finding is spotic sign which is seen in about 80% of patients with acute pericarditis. And, it's, and it is a downsloping from the T wave to the QRS segment. So if you imagine the line sloping downward from the end of the T wave all the way to the QRS segment, you can imagine that the end of that is the PR segment, which is depressed, which is the classic finding in pericarditis. This is best seen in lead two and in the lateral precordial leads, but again, it's not 100% specific and you can see spotic sign in STEMI as well. So spotic sign suggestive of pericarditis, but not a slam dunk. And as promised, here's our very own ECG cases, Jesse McLaren, to give you an overview of ECG changes in pericarditis. The ECG changes of pericarditis reflect the underlying pathology. First, there's inflammation, which exaggerates repolarization. Atrial repolarization is usually subtle, but pericarditis produces obvious PR depression. Ventricular repolarization normally has an isoelectric J-point and concave ST segments, but pericarditis produces concave ST elevation. Because there's ST elevation in one complex and PR depression in the next, Pericarditis can cause a decline in the baseline TP segment between the complexes, called spotted sign. Secondly, pericarditis is diffuse, so the ST elevation is widespread. The normal vector of the heart is down and left, so pericarditis causes diffuse, concave ST elevation, which is greater in lead 2 than in lead 3, and with reciprocal ST depression in AVR and sometimes V1. Finally, Pericarditis spares the myocardium, so there should be no ischemic changes like Q-waves, convex ST segments, or T-wave inversion at the time of the ST elevation. But no ECG sign is specific for pericarditis. Sympathetic stimulation or atrial infarction can produce prominent PR depression. Wraparound LAD occlusion can produce diffuse concave ST elevation. Circumflex occlusion can produce infralateral ST elevation, which is greater in lead 2 than in lead 3. Spotted sign can be present in STEMI. And early repolarization can produce concave ST elevation with prominent J waves. In all these situations, we need to avoid overdiagnosing pericarditis so we don't miss life threatening causes of chest pain or unnecessarily treat normal variant ST elevation. So instead of anchoring on one particular ECG sign to diagnose pericarditis, we should be looking for any opportunity to exclude the diagnosis. 
If there's a primary ST elevation of greater than 5 millimeters or convex ST segments, it's STEMI until proven otherwise, not pericarditis. If there's primary ST elevation in lead 3 greater than 2 or any ST depression in AVL, it's inferior occlusion MI until proven otherwise, not pericarditis. And if there are prominent voltages and J waves, maybe it's simply early repolarization. This doesn't mean we can't diagnose pericarditis. If a patient is young and healthy and has a classic history of post-viral positional chest pain with no clinical concerns for occlusion MI, PE, or dissection, and if they have a classic ECG with diffuse PR depression, diffuse concave ST elevation, which is not due to normal variant, ST elevation greater in 2 than in lead 3, reciprocal ST depression in AVR but none in AVL, and if they have no complications of pericarditis like tamponade or myocarditis, then we can consider the diagnosis of pericarditis. But any other scenario or ECG finding should make us consider alternate diagnoses first, including life-threatening causes of chest pain or normal variant ST elevation. As ECG expert Dr. Smith advises, you diagnose pericarditis at your peril. Of course, the ECG findings of a pericardial effusion can also be present. Those are low voltages, uh, which can be in patients who are obese and in COPD patients as well. But low voltages is, is one of the findings uh, with a large pericardial effusion and electrical alternands in a very large pericardial effusion. So those are some of the things that you should think about as well when you're looking at uh, an ECG on a patient who you think might have pericarditis. Okay, but I think the, the bottom line from there is we really don't want to miss an MI. And all these ECG signs that we've talked about so far, they are very suggestive of pericarditis, but none of them are a slam dunk. And so you really need to examine that ECG very carefully and look through all of those different signs. If you have the accumulation of all of them, then you can be comfortable saying that it's pericarditis. If you only see one of them or you're missing some of them, you really want to make sure first that it's not an MI. All right. What about differentiating the ECG of pericarditis from the ECG of early repole? This is something that often gets confused as well. Dr. Dorian, how do you sort that out? It can be tricky, and I think we need to remember that early repolarization is typically something we see in young, healthy individuals, typically tall individuals. There's some recent data that suggests that it's it's brought out by uh, intense endurance exercise, so athletes tend to have more early repole. And just as a little ECG tidbit, there's some recent work that says if athletes uh, are injured and they stop training, their early repolarization doesn't disappear but becomes less prominent, so it's a can be a reversible uh, phenomenon in young, healthy people. Uh, and of course, a lot of patients with pericarditis are y- otherwise young and pretty healthy, so you can see this in the same kind of individuals. Early repolarization tends to be not uniformly distributed through all of the leads. You can typically see it much more prominently in the anterior precordial leads, leads V2, V3, V4. It can also be evident in the uh, uh, V5 and V6. It's rarely present in leads 1 and AVL, very rarely, and you can sometimes see it in, in the inferior leads, but it's to a much different degree. The other 
clue of about early repolarization is that it can be associated with coexisting ST segment elevation, but there's typically not quite easy to describe verbally, but it looks like a little check mark or a little almost like a Nike swoosh, which follows a very sharp J point. So what you see is the QRS complex, some J point elevation, and a small, short Nike swoosh-like appearance to the transition between the J point and the onset of the T wave. It's a very sort of sharp, a quick deflection, and the T wave begins very soon after the J point, with usually a pretty tall T wave because these are young, healthy individuals. But I think it's important to emphasize it's mostly the diffuseness that will tell you whether you have one or the other, and the fact that the degrees of ST segment elevation in early repolarization can be very different between leads, whereas with pericarditis, there's not a dramatic difference between the amount of ST segment elevation, which can be fairly subtle in the different kinds of leads. Okay, so more uniform ST elevations in pericarditis. Repol is not as uniform, tend to be more in the anterior leads. Um, what about, uh, there's this rule, the ST elevation to T wave amplitude ratio of more than 0.25 it has very high predictive value for pericarditis. Uh, Dr. Himmel, can you tell us a little bit about this uh, ST elevation to T wave amplitude ratio? Yeah, well, first of all, in pericarditis and early repoil, you want to have nice healthy looking T waves, at least in the first part of pericarditis when you have ST elevation. And certainly early repoil, you want to have nice healthy T waves. And I guess the point you're making is that the ST elevation of pericarditis is somewhat more than the apparent ST elevation early repole. And I guess that's true. Um, so if you see a fish hook, that's little, that's a little hook at the end of the QRS wave on V5 and V6, the fish hook of early repole, and the ele ST elevation is slight, and it's mainly V3, V4, V5, V6, and the story is good, that favors repole. And certainly if the estivation is more, and I think some, uh, uh, there's been some literature in the emergency literature that's saying that the, if the ST elevation is more than one quarter of the height of a healthy looking T wave, that favors pericarditis. And, and that's, that's probably true. So if you don't see a fish hook and the ST elevation is more than a quarter of the T wave, that favors pericarditis. But I wouldn't put too, oh, too much weight on that. You know, it just, it's, worth, it's just worth noting, of course. Got it. Okay. So the degree of ST elevation is important. The distribution of ST elevation is important. And of course, the PR depression, if you've got really distinct PR depression diffusely, that would, of course, favor pericarditis more. It, it favors it. This is just one, one piece of information. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that seems to be the theme of this podcast, actually, with pericarditis. Is that, Very important theme. Except for maybe a, a rub. <laughs> But even Walter came up with a, an exception to the rub is that if, if there's, the patient has a hairy, hairy chest, chest with a loosely applied that can be a, a falsely positive uh, pericardial rub. In fact, rub. I hear that way more than I hear rubs. <laughs> okay. All right. Apply that stethoscope firmly. Let's move on to POCUS. We now understand a bit more about the test characteristics of ECG for pericarditis and how to distinguish the ECG findings of pericarditis from those of MI and early repole. Dr. Himmel, can you just tell us a little bit about 
how POCUS can help us in the diagnosis of pericarditis. We're going to talk about tamponade a little bit later, but in the actual diagnosis of pericarditis, what's the role of POCUS there? If you've got somebody, I would say, in the emergency department now who has a heart failure, shock, sepsis, or chest pain, except for the most trivial, ridiculous chest pain, I suppose, it's reasonable to do a, a emerge echo of the heart. What are you going to look for in pericarditis for starters? Well, you're going to look for a pericardial effusion. And certainly if you see one and it's five millimeters or, or 10 millimeters or more, that'll once again favor diagnosis of pericarditis. But of course, if you do not see a pericardial effusion, it's of no consequence. So I think it will, it will help that. Now, certainly with the first case you presented, if you have somebody who's got significant concerns about cardiac output and myocardial function, a POCUS, once again, can be used, depending on your skill set, to give you some idea about uh, myocardial contractility. And I think certainly using the uh, sub-ziphoid view, you'll get a pretty good idea if there's an infusion present or not. So when it's there, it's, it's helpful. And if it's absent, uh, I would draw no conclusion. I would just add the comment, I completely agree, that it's relatively unusual to see an effusion in patients with pericarditis. It can be complicated. Obviously, there's patients with myopericarditis. So if you see it, it's helpful, but be prepared for the fact that it could easily be pericardial inflammation without an evident effusion, particularly as the case you described where it's not terribly acute. So that's a bit about ECG and POCUS. I want to talk about blood tests. And first, there's troponin. So we know that a troponin can be elevated due to pericarditis. It can be elevated due to myopericarditis or myocarditis. And of course, it can be elevated from ACS. So Dr. Dorian, how should we interpret an elevated troponin in the context of suspected pericarditis? I mean, I guess the, the main thing is that we really want to make sure it's not an MI first. That's correct. And it obviously is going to depend on timing. So generally speaking, patients with myocardial infarction present early after the onset of symptoms and the troponins will be higher. But remember, you can get a little bit of troponitis, if you want to call it that, with either pericarditis or with unstable angina or, or myocardial ischemia syndrome. So a small amount of troponin elevation is not all that helpful. The main distinction is the the time course. Unless it, it, there's some very unusual circumstance where the patient is coming in and they're just developing in front of your eyes uh, pericardial inflammation, generally speaking, the troponins will be relatively stable over a period of hours or even days in patients with pericarditis, and eventually, of course, they'll decline. Whereas in patients with acute myocardial infarction, the troponins will, depending on the timing of it, the troponins generally go up and then go down depending on when you catch it. So if you do serial uh, troponins and the troponin is climbing, then you have to be really careful that that may be myocardial ischemia. All right. So the timing and the change of troponin, the evolution, you know, if you've got, if you got a delta two-hour troponin, that really much more favors ACS than pericarditis. Yes. And, and the, with, with the exception of myopericarditis, where you can get dramatic troponin elevations, as high troponins as you'll ever see, 
Uh, but then those patients are typically very, very sick. With isolated pericarditis, with perhaps a tiny bit of myocardial involvement, I mean, they would have to be if your troponin was elevated. Remember, with isolated pericarditis, you shouldn't get any troponin elevations or minimal. So no more normal troponin definitely does not rule out pericarditis. Uh, but if the troponin is trivially elevated, that that's certainly consistent with pericarditis. If with a dramatic troponin elevation, it's probably either an infarct or myopericarditis. Great explanation. Um, the other blood tests I want to talk about besides troponin are the inflammatory markers like CRP or ESR. Dr. Himmel, what kind of test characteristics do these inflammatory markers have for pericarditis and, and how can they help us if at all? What's the most useful marker that I find myself? Well, it's a CRP, C-reactive protein, because that's the first one that's going to go up in, in any inflammatory disease. CRP goes up right away. So from literature I've looked at, it's the sensitivity overall of a CRP elevation pericarditis. CRP more than three is about 80%. So I find the CRP very helpful. If I take a history, it sounds like pericarditis, and I do examination, don't hear anything, get a cardiogram, it looks like pericarditis, I always get a CRP and look at it. If the CRP is 10, 20, 30, 40, I'm much more confident about the diagnosis of pericarditis, but not definitively so. It moves the, the arrow in the direction of pericarditis. If the CRP is one or two, literature suggests you can still have early pericarditis but I start to question myself a bit. So I think a CRP is the it's a very helpful inflammatory marker. White count, unhelpful in my opinion. ESR, unhelpful in my opinion. And other inflammatory markers, unhelpful, at least initially in the emergency department when you're first diagnosing a patient. But a, a high CRP, rapid heart rate, good story, maybe a rub if you can hear one, typical EKG, you start to get much more confident in your diagnosis. All right, so... CRP, yes, probably useful in the emergency department for the initial diagnosis, probably useful for patients with recurrent pericarditis, uh, may help in following the, the clinical course. And uh, if it's very high, I suppose that should increase your suspicion for myocarditis. Um, and if it's perfectly normal, then that makes it a bit less likely that it's pericarditis. Bear? And elevated CRP definitely does not rule out a myocardial infarction by any means. That's important. A high CRP does not rule out myocardial infarction. That's an important point. And now a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Metricade is constantly improving their technology. They've got a great, easy-to-use mobile app, They've got a robust reporting module that captures all HR metrics and integrates with payroll systems. Do not settle for software that's being farmed by other vendors. Your needs change constantly and their software should keep pace. Go to metricade.com slash emcases for more details. I want to move on to one of the major complications that we probably care about the most in the emerge of pericarditis, and that is cardiac tamponade. So thankfully, cardiac tamponade rarely occurs in patients with acute viral pericarditis or idiopathic pericarditis, the vast majority that we're going to see. 
tamponade is much more common in patients with an underlying etiology like malignancy or TB pericarditis or severe hypothyroidism, uh, one of the other etiologies besides the usual viral pericarditis that we see. And we know that cardiac tamponade is a clinical diagnosis. At least that's what they say in all the textbooks. Now, POCUS can help us in the diagnosis if the effusion is huge, but it's not the size of the effusion alone that matters. And it's more really the pressure that's being put on the right atrium that matters. Because you can have, for example, an acute rapid accumulation of fluid around the heart, like a bleed, the absolute volume of which can be very small, like even 50 cc's or 100 cc's, and that pretty small pericardial effusion can cause tamponade. So this makes the diagnosis very tricky. The way I'd like to go about this is first ask Dr. Himmel about the likelihood ratios for some of the clinical features, and then we'll ask Dr. Dorian about what his kind of trigger for saying, okay, now we have tamponade. So first, some sensitivities and likelihood ratios for some of the historical and physical examination features. And really, there are five features that occur in the majority of the patients with tamponade. So first is dyspnea with a sensitivity of about 88%. Second is tachycardia with a sensitivity of about 77%. Third is pulsus paradoxus with a sensitivity of about 82% and JVD with a sensitivity of about 76%, and finally, cardiomegaly on the chest X-ray with a sensitivity of about 89%. And based on one study, the presence of pulsus paradoxus greater than 10 in a patient with a pericardial effusion increases the likelihood of tamponade with a likelihood ratio of 3.3, while a pulsus paradoxus of 10 or less greatly lowers the likelihood with a negative LR of 0.03. The pericardial sac to the heart is like your skull is to your brain. If you get a bleed in your brain, your brain gets squished. And if you've got a very tight pericardial sac, your heart's going to get squished. So what are the big features? Well, tamponade means you've got sufficient pressure on your heart that your right and left atria and ventricle aren't getting any blood and can't uh, produce an ejection fraction or a stroke volume. So if you've got tamponade, you're gonna have tachycardia over 100, or 120, or 140, 150. That's a big deal. You're gonna have hypotension. By the time that happens, that's a big deal. And you won't be able to hear heart sounds. So clinically, those are three super important uh, characteristics of tamponade. And of course, by the time those are extreme, you've probably <laughs> waited a bit longer. The patient came in very late. What are the other important features? Well, people talk about two things, jugular venous pressure, JVP, and so forth. Is that extended in tamponade? Sure, by the time your pericardial pressure is more than zero, by the time it's five or 10 or 15 centimeters of water, your JVP is gonna be extended. Like by the time it's up to your ears from tamponade, you've got a serious problem on your hands. So that's got a very high likelihood ratio because that's a sign you've got tamponade, obviously. But of course, there's a big differential diagnosis there. A patient with tamponade look really terrible. They're really acutely ill. And there's a, a not-so-subtle difference between a person who has pericarditis and has some chest discomfort and is a bit short of breath than somebody who has a tamponade who they generally look very, very sick. So that's a kind of a nonspecific comment. 
And in my experience, you often have a palpable inspiratory fall in blood pressure. Just put your fingers on the radial or brachial pulse and uh, just watch the patient breathe in and out. Often the patients are tachypneic. And if you're careful enough, I think the fingers are probably, it's easier to do this than with a sigma manometer takes 30 seconds or a minute. You know, in a minute, they'll have 30 respiratory cycles if they're breathing quickly. And it's not as difficult as most people say it is to actually palpate an inspiratory fall in blood pressure. You can just feel it with your fingers. And if you think you feel it, you're probably right. Hmm. Great clinical pearl there. So Dr. Dorian, just to clarify, what you're talking about when you palpate the pulse and you feel it dropping with inspiration is you're talking about the poor man's pulses paradoxes, right? Exactly. Yeah, so I've got to give the emergency viewpoint on that. Uh, civic manometers don't exist in emergency departments, and the few that might are all broken. <laughs> However, every word Paul has said is absolutely true. If you take a breath when your finger's on someone's radial pulse, which I still do, actually. I was taught this about 45 years ago. And when their radial pulse gets very weak or disappears every inspiration, there's something very bad going on. They've got asthma, they're about to die. They've got pneumothorax, they're about to die. Or they have tamponade, they're about to die. Because every time you take a breath, your left ventricle cannot produce a ejection fraction, can't produce cardiac output. That is pulses paradoxus, and that's bad. Sigmanometers don't exist, at least not the ones in the 20th century. So given that there are some clinical clues that we just talked about for tamponade and that it is a clinical diagnosis and that POCUS isn't that helpful unless there's a huge effusion, because we know that small effusions can also cause cardiac tamponade, what are some other things, first of all, on point-of-care ultrasound that would push us more towards tamponade? Or what else in your experience do you find will actually trigger you to go ahead and do a pericardiocentesis on an emergency basis? Well, I'd say, first of all, the patient's going to look awful, just as we described, and they're going to have tachycardic, and they're going to be hypotensive, and they're going to have an effusion. And then you'll do your uh, four-chamber apical or your subxiphoid, and you'll see something very bizarre. Uh, during the astole, your right ventricle uh, will collapse. It'll be squished by pericardial pressure. Uh, some people, I think, call this a trampoline sign, where it's like it's being squished in, squished in, squished in. Or your right atria is, is going to collapse when it should be expanding. So during diastole, your right atria and your right ventricle should both be getting blood. They shouldn't be collapsing. So if you're seeing ventric right ventricular collapse and right atrial systolic collapse, I should say, that's very worrisome. So when your atria should be getting blood and it collapses, or your right ventricle should be getting blood and it collapses, and that's obvious. You, you'll, you'll see the thing is squished right in, in the presence of a swinging heart with lots of fluid. Uh, that tells you your heart is about to stop producing any outflow at all. So it's the entire picture. And it's, it's quite a shocking, impressive picture, and everything occurs at the same time, just as you're about to go to an arrest situation. Just to review the POCUS findings then of tamponade, which, again, it's a clinical diagnosis, but this is going to be supportive a large pericardial effusion, like over two and a half centimeters usually, but again, it's small ones can cause it. A diastolic right ventricular collapse, which has quite a high specificity. There's a systolic right atrial collapse, 
which apparently is the earliest sign. And uh, usually you'll have a big, fat, plethoric IVC with minimal respiratory variation. However, you can have a normal IVC as well. So uh, it's, it's a little bit tricky there. It's, again, the accumulation of these data points that would help support the diagnosis of tamponade. Of course, the reason why we're reviewing all of these things is because I've been in the situation where you have a patient who's not hypotensive yet, and you're not sure whether they have tamponade or not, and then suddenly they just crash and go hypotensive. You really want to be able to diagnose it and put in that needle before they crash and go hypotensive. So, Dr. Dorian, any last uh, yeah, I, I clinical think, clues? Uh, you know, some patients can have the uh, tamponade physiology with relatively low pressures, and as long as the pericardial pressure is higher than the intracardiac pressure, the heart won't be able to fill exactly as we've heard. So, uh, you you usually have uh, engorged IVC, and you usually have elevated neck veins, but they may not be that high if you're if you have relative uh, intravascular volume depletion. Um, in any event, if you want to, or at least temporarily, unless you think the patient has um, severe pre-existing left ventricular dysfunction, typically these patients don't, they're relatively younger and not so sick, just give a large bolus of fluid because that will both make the physiology a little more evident, but more particularly, the filling pressures inside the heart will tend to now counteract the external pressure squishing the heart, and you can increase the cardiac output. So, there's both a sort of a diagnostic, but more importantly, a clinical benefit to a fluid administration. Ah, that's a great little pearl. Now, if you're on the fence about whether a patient has cardiac tamponade or not, there are three moves to consider. And I'm borrowing from Josh Farkas here. Thank you, Josh. Number one is if the patient is clinically stable, consider a stat echocardiogram done by an ultrasound tech if that's available to you. Number two is put in an art line so that you can continuously monitor for pulses paradoxus. So that way, as soon as the patient starts to develop pulses paradoxus, you go for the pericardiocentesis. And number three, just go for the pericardiocentesis, ideally with help. So you're doing a diagnostic and a therapeutic pericardiocentesis. Remember, that's really the definitive test for cardiac tamponade. And remember that if the patient is unstable, they're in shock, do not delay the pericardiocentesis. Just like the most common mistake in doing a crike is delaying doing it, similarly, you don't want to delay doing a pericardiocentesis in an unstable patient. Not considering is one problem and delaying too long is the second problem. So don't assume that tamponade will always be associated with a huge effusion on POCUS. Small, rapidly accumulating pericardial effusions can cause tamponade. Things that should increase your suspicion of tamponade, but that aren't present 100% of the time, are pulses paradoxus, which you can look for just on doing a radial pulse, JVD, rapidly worsening symptoms or hypotension, cardiomegaly on chest x-ray, IVC dilatation on POCUS, and not only right atrial collapse, but diastolic right ventricular collapse. So those are the things that can help us out, uh, hopefully before the patient crashes. We're not going to go into the details of pericardiocentesis on this episode, but I'll direct our listeners to best case ever number 31, 
which is emergency pericardiocentesis, where Andrew Slois tells us the tale of an emergency pericardiocentesis gone bad, and he reviews all the steps of the procedures. Uh, we'll have some video links on the show notes as well. All right, let's move on to the treatment of pericarditis. We're going to shift gears away from managing tamponade and just talk about the run-of-the-mill pericarditis and how to treat it. So let's say we've made the diagnosis of pericarditis in the ED. We've deemed the patient safe to go home. We'll get into the details of disposition a bit later. But first, Dr. Dorian, what are we trying to achieve with treatment of our patient with run-of-the-mill viral pericarditis? In other words, what are the goals of management? So uh, we know that uh, pericarditis is an inflammatory phenomenon, and we want to treat the inflammation, and the go-to therapies are non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents. Some uh, pericarditis will resolve on its own without recurrence, but there's probably about a 30% recurrence rate, which could happen months or even more later, but typically happens over the next couple of months. And the prevention of recurrence medication is colchicine. Uh, which is much safer than people used to think. It can have gastrointestinal side effects. So we use both uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents for the acute inflammation and colchicine to prevent recurrences. Okay. So your main goals of treatment are to treat the acute inflammation and to prevent recurrence, and that's generally going to be with NSAIDs and colchicine. Let's talk a little bit more about the exact medications and the evidence for them. Uh, Dr. Himmel, what's the best evidence-based treatment for pericarditis with a presumed viral cause? In terms of anti-inflammatories, the ones that have traditionally have been used indomethacin, and certainly anybody who's been around for more than 20 or 30 years is very comfortable with indomethacin, realizing full well that the incidence of gastritis is fairly high. And the dose will be about 15 milligrams three times a day or 75 twice a day, which is a pretty substantial dose and causes a fair amount of gastritis and so forth. So you always give it with a gastroprotective agent. Uh, most guidelines I've seen also talk about uh, um, ibuprofen or Advil in an anti-inflammatory dose. Now, we've been taught time and time again there's a maximal analgesic dose for Advil, and there is. But when it comes to ibuprofen, they truly recommend an anti-inflammatory dose, which would be at least 1,800 milligrams a day. Not the analgesic dose of 400 milligrams, but the anti-inflammatory dose of 600 milligrams three times a day. So the choice is yours. I suspect if you're under 40 years of age, you're going to use Advil. And if you're over 40 or 45, not the patient, the doctor, you're probably going to use indomethacin. Uh, I would say increasingly over the last four or five years, I've seen a big, big change with the use of colchicine based on a big research article in the English Medicine published, I believe, in 2013. A lot of meta-analysis has been approaching a standard of care where you're quite sure the person's got pericarditis, particularly if the symptoms are impressive and the CRP is elevated and you're confident in diagnosis. So colchicine has been shown to do two things. It, it, it promotes a rapid, more rapid resolution of the symptoms, and certainly cuts by at least 50% the recurrence rate. Now, the European dose, because they make a 0.5 milligram tablet, is 0.5 milligrams twice a day if you're more than 70 kilograms, and 0.5 milligrams once a day if you're under 70 kilograms. Now, in Canada, it's only a 0.6 milligram tablet or a 0.3 milligram tablet. So I would say, it's my practice as an emerge doctor right now, particularly with COVID, and it's hard to get follow-ups right now. If someone's got a significant amount of pain, 
and I'm confident in my diagnosis and her CRP is 10 or 20 or 30, I am now starting them on colchicine. 0.6 milligrams a day if you're under 70 kilograms and 0.6 milligrams twice a day if you're over 70 kilograms. Now that being said, someone's got to follow the CBC. Someone's got to see the patient in less than a week. They do need follow-up. So the evidence for colchicine, excellent. The evidence for NSAIDs, excellent. And use the one you're most familiar with. And certainly the ones that are the most experienced at the present time are indomethacin and ibuprofen. But I would never fault anybody about not using naproxen to 500 milligrams twice a day by any means. I would just add that uh, when you're going to use colchicine, you want to make sure that you warn the patient about the probability that they will have some stomach upset or nausea or potentially diarrhea, which is doesn't necessarily preclude continuing use of the drug, but you want to warn the patients about that. Absolutely. I understand that another option is aspirin and that you might want to consider aspirin instead of ibuprofen or indomethacin or naproxen. When would you use aspirin as opposed to the other NSAIDs we've talked about for pericarditis? If they were getting an aspirin 81 milligrams a day because of a previous TIA or because they had a stent a year or two years ago and now they had pericarditis, what would I do? Well, I'd probably leave them on the aspirin 81 milligrams and give them anti-inflammatory. Well, I'd be very curious to see what Paul thinks. And I would probably use Advil or indomethacin, realizing full well I may have a side effect problem. But I'd like to hear what Paul has to say about this. You've got a person with pericarditis, they've got a stent two years ago, they are on aspirin. What do you do for their pericarditis? I would treat their pericarditis the way we've just talked about. Uh, there is some data that suggests to me that higher doses of aspirin for the prevention of intraarterial thrombus, which is why we use aspirin in coronary disease, is not only not better, but it may be counterproductive. So I think there's absolutely no benefit to the coronary arterial tree to use high doses of aspirin. 81 milligrams a day is enough. So the purpose here is to treat the inflammation in the pericardial space. So I think the coronary disease issue you treat one way and the pericardial inflammation you treat with something different. I don't think that you're doing the coronary tree any uh, any benefit by using very high doses of aspirin. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. Just give them a PPI and get an early follow-up for sure. <laughs> right. For sure. Okay, so suffice to say that it's really NSAIDs that are the primary treatment. If you do have someone who's on antiplatelet agents, treat it as two separate things, uh, and just make sure you protect their GI tract because if they're going to be on their usual 81 milligrams of aspirin and maybe they're on Plavix because they have a stent as well, or maybe they're you know on dual antiplatelet therapy for a recent TIA or something, um, leave that as it is, add your NSAID, and give them gastric protection with a PPI. It's important for uh, the emergency room physician to remind patients that the colchicine therapy is generally for many months. Some people use it for three months, some people use it for six, depending on whether there's this is recurrent or first time ever. But the patients need to be warned that they need follow-up, and this is not therapy for a couple of days, uh, the NSAIDs you can generally stop uh, relatively quickly, depending on how quickly the inflammation settles down. But the colchicine is a months-long therapy. And patients need to be warned that they need to stay close to their physicians or their cardiologist or their internist. And it would be uh, not a very wise idea for them to take two weeks of therapy and then stop taking it. Okay, so suffice to say that usually the NSAIDs, they're usually taking them for a week or two. 
And again, that's where the CRP might come in. The medications are usually then tapered based on the CRP and the patient's symptoms. But the colchicine, they might be taking for much longer. I guess from an emergency perspective, the bottom line is make sure the patient is followed up within a week or two and just tell them to take both the NSAID and the colchicine for the entire duration until they see uh, the specialist and follow up. Is that fair? Exactly. So that's the primary therapy for viral or presumed viral pericarditis or idiopathic pericarditis. Those patients who are good enough to go home, you'll be giving them either ibuprofen 600 milligrams TID or indomethacin 50 milligrams TID plus colchicine. If they're under 70 kilograms, it'll be 0.6 milligrams once a day. If they're over 70 kilograms, it'll be twice a day. And for those patients who are already taking antiplatelets, especially, or who have any GI history, it's perfectly reasonable to add a PPI. And just to warn the patients that they might have some diarrhea with the colchicine and to definitely keep on taking the medications until they see the specialist and follow up. The second line medication after NSAIDs for pericarditis are corticosteroids. Dr. Himmel, can you tell us when you might use corticosteroids and, uh, and what the evidence is around corticosteroids? Well, corticosteroids are definitely anti-inflammatory, but the problem with corticosteroids is when you stop them in the context of pericarditis, pericarditis tends to really flare up. So they are a medication I would personally virtually never prescribe for pericarditis. The one situation I can imagine a consultant using it would be a person in whom non-steroidal is either absolutely contraindicated or completely ineffective, or they've got some odd immune disease. So prednisone plays no role except in very special situations for treatment of pericarditis because the risk of a flare-up when you stop it. Okay, so definitely second line, and they're going to have a much higher recurrence rate on steroids than they would on your NSAIDs that we talked about. So my experience has been exactly that. It, it's the, the patients I tend to see are the patients who've been on steroids, they came off steroids, the pericarditis came back. They're very difficult to treat. It's often a chronic relapsing problem that happens once or twice a year for many years. It's a really big problem. And I've seen a few patients where you just can't wean them off the steroids at all. Now, mind you, I, it, those patients were not necessarily treated with colchicine from the get-go, which avoids this whole problem. I may have been seeing only the sort of the worst cases, but I would absolutely try to avoid steroids if at all possible, unless, as you mentioned, there was another separate indication. Again, the key take-home point there is that the reason you're giving colchicine in addition to the NSAID is because that has been well-proven to massively decrease the rate of recurrence of pericarditis, which is the most common complication of pericarditis, is just getting it again and again and again. So don't forget about that colchicine. For treatment, we've been talking about the -the run-of-the-mill viral or idiopathic pericarditis, but of course, the treatment is going to change if the underlying cause is TB or cancer or uremia or what have you. For cancer-related pericarditis, most patients will have a large effusion that need pericardiocentesis, and they need to search for the primary cancer, whether it's breast or lung or lymphoma, etc. Or if the patient with cancer-related pericarditis has a hemorrhagic effusion, they often need a pericardial window. 
If uremia is the underlying cause of pericarditis, many of those patients need dialysis plus minus a pericardiocentesis. And remember that colchicine and NSAIDs are generally contraindicated in patients with pericarditis and severe renal impairment. The particular case of a patient who's taking anticoagulants, how would that alter your, your treatment, Dr. Dr. Himmel? That's a concern, because first of all, DOAC alone or warfarin alone, you're worried about hemorrhagic effusions. That's, that's one issue comes to mind right away. And then the second issue you're worrying about is an NSAID plus a DOAC with GI bleeding and so forth. How, that, how would that affect me? I would speak to a, an internist or a cardiologist. First, I want to make sure the diagnosis was accurate. Is it, was this a simple viral pericarditis or do we have a viral pericarditis with, with myocarditis or do we have a, a hemorrhagic pericarditis? I, I'd be very circumspect about that. Because setting up with hemorrhagic pericarditis is a, could be problematical. So I have two questions in my mind, GI side effects, causing bleeding, and of course, having underlying hemorrhagic uh, problem. So if there are any coagulants, I definitely am going to get a second opinion on this one for sure. All right. So the complications of pericarditis include tamponade that we've already talked about. They include recurrent pericarditis, which we've mentioned can happen quite often, unfortunately, unless you do give colchicine, that makes the recurrent pericarditis 50% less likely. And then the other one, which Dr. Dorian had mentioned briefly, was constrictive pericarditis. Let's move on to disposition. Now, many of the young, otherwise healthy patients with presumed viral pericarditis are safe to be sent home with cardiology follow-up, medications, and instructions not to exercise. But some of those patients should be admitted And then there's the patient with pericarditis from other causes like we've mentioned, uremia, lupus, hypothyroidism, TB, Dressler's, which is pretty rare these days as well, from cancer like METs, from breast or lung or lymphoma. What are the indications for admission for pericarditis and what are some of the markers of poor prognosis that we should be aware of when making disposition decisions for these patients? I would say... Anybody other than those patients with simple, uncomplicated, mildly symptomatic pericarditis, you want to refer, and most of those patients will get admitted at a minimum for their peace of mind, and so you can do the investigations quickly and simply. I think it would be adventuresome to discharge anybody who has anything more than simple, uncomplicated pericarditis. All right, fair enough. So high fever, if they haven't responded uh, to therapy over the last week or so, if they've got a big pericardial effusion over 20 millimeters, if they're on oral anticoagulants, uh, if they're immunosuppressed, if you suspect that they might have myocarditis or they have an elevated trope or both, um, those are some of the things that you want to consider them for admission. Just to remind listeners that the vast majority of patients that we see with pericarditis are going to be viral slash idiopathic, and the vast majority will be safe enough to send home. All right, let's hone in on our big review of this podcast. Our general approach to pericarditis should be that it is a diagnosis of exclusion after we've ruled out the big chest pain killers. Avoid premature closure. When it comes to clinical features, some things to consider are the timing. 
So persistent chest pain for weeks on end is not typical for ACS or PE or dissection and thorax, and should raise suspicion for pericarditis. Acute pericarditis can happen at any age, but young, otherwise healthy patients with chest pain are more likely to have pericarditis than, say, ACS, for example. Some of these patients will have a prodrome, so ask about a respiratory or GI viral prodrome. Chest pain is typically central, pleuritic, sharp, worse on lying supine, and better on sitting up and leaning forward, although a lot of patients can't really describe their pain very well, so sometimes the type of pain isn't that helpful. There may be a fever associated, which pretends a poor prognosis. In terms of the friction rub, listen at the left sternal border with the patient leaning forward at end expiration and listen for that triphasic rub. None of these things alone rule in or rule out pericarditis, not even a friction rub. For workup, CRP may be helpful in risk stratifying patients and predicting recurrence, and you'll usually get a trope to rule out ACS, myocarditis, etc. When it comes to the ECG, the main pitfall is assuming pericarditis instead of MI, even when you see that diffuse ST elevation or ST depression. In terms of the stages, it's stage one is the classic ST elevation and or PR depression, and stage four is the normalization of the ECG, but the patient going through these stages are highly variable over time. Understand that there are no ECG signs alone that have a 100% accuracy for the diagnosis of pericarditis, but the important signs that are suggestive of pericarditis are the following, and these are the things that you really need to scrutinize that ECG for. Number one is that the ST elevation in pericarditis is rarely greater than five millimeters. Number two, that the ST elevations are more commonly concave upwards or a scoop or a bowl or a U-shape in pericarditis, where as in STEMI, they're more commonly convex. There's a spotic sign, which is that downsloping from the T-wave all the way to the QRS segment. In terms of the ST segments, besides the diffuse ST elevations, look particularly at V1 and VR, because if there's ST depressions in AVR or V1, that favors pericarditis. If the ST elevation in lead 2 is greater than that of the ST elevation in lead 3, that favors pericarditis. The ST segment in AVL should be elevated in pericarditis, and if it's depressed, especially with T-wave changes, that's pretty specific for an inferior MI. If ST elevation or PR depression is present, there's usually a preservation of the normal upright T-waves in pericarditis, and the J-point in pericarditis is sharper compared to a more blurred J-point in the MI, generally speaking. When it comes to cardiac tamponade, the biggest pitfalls are one, delaying pericardiocentesis, and number two, assuming they don't have tamponade just because the effusion is small on POCUS. Remember, this is a clinical diagnosis with POCUS as an adjunct. And remember, when you do the POCUS, pay very close attention to the right ventricle and atrium, because if you see right ventricular and atrial collapse, that's very suggestive of tamponade. 
We'll get more into POCUS in part two of the podcast series when we talk about myocarditis. Get good at assessing for pulsus paradoxus by palpating the patient's pulse. And when it comes to treatment for outpatient treatment of run-of-the-mill uncomplicated pericarditis, first you want to instruct the patient to restrict strenuous physical activity because exercise may trigger recurrence of symptoms. When it comes to NSAIDs, you've got a choice between ibuprofen, 600 milligrams POTID, or indomethacin, 50 milligrams POTID. And this should be for at least a week or two and then tapered. And then very importantly, colchicine 0.6 milligrams daily for those under 70 kilograms and BID for those 70 kilograms or over. And don't forget to add a PPI for those at high risk of upper GI bleed or for those patients who need to take their antiplatelet therapy in addition to the NSAID that you're prescribing them. And the huge take-home that we've mentioned over and over for good reason is to be sure to include colchicine because it helps prevent the most common complication of pericarditis, and that is recurrent pericarditis. Well, that about wraps up part one of our two-part series on pericarditis and myocarditis. In part two, we're going to be talking about myocarditis in particular and about the relationship between COVID infection and pericarditis and myocarditis and COVID vaccination and pericarditis and myocarditis. So thank you very much, gentlemen. I'll see you and speak to you in part two. Thank you so much. That was, that was fun. Great. I'm going to get a coffee. That was a lot. <laughs>